What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm former FBI Assistant Director Frank Figluzzi. Join me on a journey deep inside the world's premier law enforcement agency to decode the mysteries and challenges of today's FBI. The threats facing America are as real as the men and women who battle to protect us. In this first-of-a-kind podcast, we sit down with active-duty FBI personnel who reveal their mission, their cases, and their lives. Let's go inside the Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. When you talk to an FBI agent coming into the Bureau, the last thing they think of is working a rape case in a remote Indian reservation in central North Dakota. Sounds like it's different work than the, say, the average FBI agent. The Pine Ridge Indian Reservation encompasses over 3,000 square miles, about the size of the state of Delaware. This is very victim-centric. Uh, agents often work alone. They don't work in pairs. What, what police might refer to as domestic calls, almost on steroids, where there's there's victims within the house. But the jurisdiction of the non-tribal police stops at the reservation boundary. This episode's guest is Assistant Special Agent in Charge, Robert Perry, of the FBI's Minneapolis Field Office, who oversees the FBI's work in a vast, multi-state territory of Native American tribal reservations. Let's explore the FBI in Indian country. Bob, thanks for joining us. Certainly, thanks for having me. Well, let's get into a topic that most Americans don't necessarily associate with the FBI, and that is Indian reservations, Native Americans, the indigenous tribes, and their relationship to how the FBI helps police and keep secure our nation's Native American reservations. Bob, as always, I start out each episode with a question about you, your journey into the FBI, where you've come from, where you've been in the Bureau. Let's start with that personal question about how you got to where you are today. Sure. So I grew up in 
went through school, through college in eastern Pennsylvania, quite far from any Indian reservations as we know them in the West. Uh, after graduating from college, I joined the Pennsylvania State Police and spent eight years as a state police officer in Pennsylvania. In 1997, I joined the FBI. I uh, was initially sent to Modesto, California, so all the way across the country. Uh, in Modesto, I worked a lot of different uh, violations, but primarily drugs and violent crime. After being in Modesto a few years, I was then assigned to lead a Safe Streets Task Force in Stockton, California, focused on gang activity in the Stockton area. I spent about six years in California. Uh, my family and I decided that uh, we wanted to move somewhat east, not all the way. Uh, so we volunteered for an open position in the Pier, most people pronounce it Pierre, the capital of South Dakota, the Pier Resident Agency in South Dakota, located in the central part of South Dakota. After a few years there, I was promoted to supervisory senior resident agent, where I was then transferred to Rapid City. I spent almost seven years as a supervisor, uh, supervising primarily Indian country crime. And I'll explain that the legal definition with the FBI and with federal law is Indian country. So you'll hear me refer to it in that way, simply because that's what I'm used to. Um, after about seven years as a supervisor in Rapid City, I was promoted and took a headquarters position in the FBI's inspection division. Uh, subsequent to that, I came back to the Minneapolis division and attained the role I have now as assistant special agent in charge, uh, still physically located in Rapid City. So I think one of the things when uh, our listeners uh, consider their FBI field office, they, they often don't have a feel for how broad or vast the FBI field office's territory might be. Be. And if I hear you correctly, just because it's FBI Minneapolis does not mean that your judicial districts are confined to the state of Minnesota. Give us a feel for how broad and vast your territory is at FBI Minneapolis. We, you've just told us you don't even sit every day in, in the state of Minnesota. Right. So the FBI Minneapolis division uh, encompasses three state region, Minnesota, South Dakota, in North Dakota. Uh, we have, I think it's 14 sub offices we refer to as resident agencies across that three state area. Across those resident agencies, those offices are staffed by various numbers of agents working different violations. Primary work in the Dakotas is crime in Indian country. Uh, so our region encompasses three states. We are the third geographically largest FBI field office behind Salt Lake City, which has Utah, Montana, and Idaho, and of course, Alaska. That's a lot of territory to cover. It also sounds like you've, you've got more than one time zone in your territory. I actually sit in the mountain time zone and the rest of the division is in the central time zone. Let's start more broadly before we dive into your territory and the uniqueness of covering reservations. Give us a feel across the Bureau for the, the Indian country program and what it looks like and then how it compares to your uh, particular field office. Sure. So nationwide, there are 574 approximately, uh, it's a pretty solid number, but 574 recognized tribes. Of those 574, the FBI exercises jurisdiction, federal criminal jurisdiction, in about 200. 
the rest are covered in what is known as public law 280 states where the state has jurisdiction in the Indian country. Uh, across those 200 reservations, the Bureau has approximately 151 agents assigned to work crimes in Indian country and 44 victim specialists. Significant numbers of each, especially the victim specialists, which is nearly a third of their overall complement in the Bureau. Crime in Indian country is so victim-centric that the victim specialist role is vital. So that's a nationwide perspective. The biggest field offices that handle Indian country are Minnesota, Phoenix, Albuquerque, Salt Lake City, and now Oklahoma. We're going to talk about the victim witness role here because it's so incredibly significant in all violations the FBI works. But let's get down into your neck of the woods and tell us how the law enforcement picture looks across the reservations. Um, Many of our listeners might make the assumption that the Indian reservations have their own police forces and therefore police themselves. Where, where's that line? What's your, what represents FBI jurisdiction in a particular fence versus say um, the police on the reservation? And then what's that relationship look like between the FBI and those police departments? Sure. That's an interesting and complex question because there are different variations of law enforcement depending on which reservation you're on and which state you're in. So in our three-state area, we're a mix. North and South Dakota are exclusively tribal federal jurisdiction. In Minnesota, there are a number of tribes there, but Minnesota is known as a 280 state that I referenced earlier where the state, county, city has jurisdiction in any country. However, they have two exceptions. So the Red Lake Nation and the Boys Fort Reservation, both in northern Minnesota, are federal reservations just like those in the Dakotas. So each of those reservations has its own police department. Some are direct services, meaning the BIA, uniformed federal BIA police officers police those reservations. Others, the tribe contracts its police services so they can get a contract from BIA. BIA then funds them to create their own police department, and we refer to those as tribal police officers. Those tribal slash BIA police officers on the reservation are responsible for everyday police activity as we know it. An interesting fact, though, is that the Indian country governments or the Indian country prosecution is limited um, to punishment up to one year. So essentially misdemeanor crime. So when crime enters the felony stage, that's when either the BIA criminal investigators or the FBI get involved. And again, um, BIA and FBI have similar jurisdictions in Indian country. And again, some tribes use BIA criminal investigators. Some criminal investigators are contracted with the tribal police department. The FBI sets priorities in Indian country. Right now, our priorities in the Minneapolis division are homicide, rape, and that includes adults and children, uh, drugs, and other violent crime. We focus on those because there are the more complex cases um, where the FBI has tools and personnel and resources that can contribute to those investigations. What percentage of the FBI's Minneapolis division work pertains to those Indian reservations? So it is the largest program by uh, staffing in the Minneapolis division with approximately 35 agents focused on Indian country across the three-state region. Um, We have approximately... 180 special agents in the division. So a quarter, around a quarter of the agents work any country crime. Yeah, that's significant. And and so, look, the, the, the work you've just described is violent stuff, 
homicide, rape, violent assaults. Give us some more granular details about not only the nature of that work um, in Indian country, but then let's go and talk about the agents and specialists that are assigned to that work and their skill sets. It's it sounds like it's different work than the say the average FBI agent. Yeah, it's different and unexpected. When you talk to an FBI agent coming into the bureau, the last thing they think of is working in a rape case in a remote Indian reservation in the central north central North Dakota. Um, so it is unique work. Our primary focus, of course, is on like as, as I stated, murder and sexual assault. Too many of our cases are sexual assault of minor children. That that covers probably anywhere from 35 to 50 percent of our cases in a given year. COVID has made it a little different, but it's by far the most focus the agents have. So what I mean by that is even though it's 40 to 50 percent of our caseload, they're more complex cases and the agents spend 60 to 80 percent of their work time on those cases. Uh, we focus, this is not to say that that's the most prevalent crime in any country by any means, but it is something we focus on because they are more complex and we feel we bring investigative tools, better trained agents uh, in that discipline and are more effective in investigating those crimes. As you said earlier, this is very victim-centric work. This isn't white-collar crime where a corporation might be the victim. So here come the FBI's incredible victim witness specialists. And you mentioned you've got an inordinately high percentage of victim witness specialists. Take us inside their work and how they relate to the victims on a reservation and in particular uh, child victims. Sure. And it is their, their primary work, at least those that work in any country. So in the Minneapolis division alone, we have a dozen victim specialists. Uh, that's a quarter of the Indian country victim specialist in the nation. One of the issues they face daily, one of the challenges is resources are not available on the reservations, on most reservations. For instance, if a child has to come see a doctor or participate in a forensic interview, they have to travel long distances. For instance, the victim specialist in Rapid City may have to travel two, two and a half hours to pick up a, a child victim, drive them then to Rapid City where they can be evaluated, turn around, drive them back home, and then drive themselves back to their home in Rapid City. And it's it's challenging that one, the services aren't available there. And two, it's a very, I'll say, poor community. There's not a lot of work. There's um, some of the poorest counties in our country, or counties that include Indian reservations. So many people don't have cars or an ability to travel all the way from the reservation to Rapid City. Poverty rates are very high on some of these reservations. So it creates an extra burden for our victim specialists. And I think an important thing to point out that I that I already have is that travel time. They are driving down, driving back, back down to drop them off, back home. It's longer than a day's work. That could be a 12-hour day. You figure there's two hours of driving time each way. So driving time alone is eight hours. You know, the you're giving us a sense of the the size of ground covered not only by victim witness specialists, but by the agents. And I you know, I'm thinking violent crime, long, long travel times, isolation, working alone or with just one partner. What's what's it like in terms of the availability of backup, partnership, 
how far away might the nearest uh, help be if an agent gets into trouble? Yeah, and you brought up a good point. A lot of people think that Indian country or an Indian reservation is a spot on the map. The Pine Ridge Indian Reservation encompasses over 3,000 square miles, about the size of the state of Delaware. It's not a county down in southern South Dakota. It's big. So agents, you know, most a lot of their day is spent what we call windshield time and to see their car driving to or from. So they may drive an hour and a half to the western part of the reservation, which is closest to us, learn that their victim or subject or witness is on the eastern side of the reservation, which from where they are is another hour and a half drive. So that geographic expanse is one of the largest challenges agents face. And at the same time, when you talked about potential backup, there are tribal police officers in most communities, but too often they're understaffed and uh, agents often work alone. Um, they don't work in pairs. I often talk about how it's more dangerous for an agent to work on the reservation today than it was in the 1970s when we had agents killed. Now, when I say that, I don't mean it's more of a threat, but they have less, as you stated, backup. Back in those days, they worked in pairs. Now we work largely alone unless they know they're going to do uh, something that could be potentially dangerous, like make an arrest. Not that everything could be potentially dangerous, but generally an agent will travel the reservation, interview somebody outside their residence while in his or her car, uh, and, and go to the next witness or the next victim or the next subject with very little interaction with tribal police or tribal criminal investigators, uh, mainly because of the volume of crime. They're focused on their cases, we're focused on our cases, and we try and have somewhat of a delineation of okay, the tribal criminal base investigators will work these crimes and the FBI will work these crimes. Larger cases like murders, well, we work together, but we do break down the, uh, the cases and share responsibility rather than everybody trying to do the same thing. You referenced uh, agents being killed. I, that's a, a reference to the tragic murders of uh, agents Jack Kohler and Ron Williams back in 1975, right, right there at Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota. What's what's the receptiveness today to the FBI showing up working crime on Indian reservations? What's the level of tension? Um, what are the what are the relationship building tasks and challenges look like there? That's a good question. I will point out that even back then in 1975, when Jack and Ron were killed, the perpetrators of that crime were not members of the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. They were members of other reservations. And, uh, Leonard Peltier was a member of the, and a role member of the Turtle Mountain Reservation in North Dakota. It was the worst outbreak of violence on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation since the 71 day siege at Wounded Knee two years ago. Police sources said the agents may have survived the initial gunfire, only to be executed later. Then there was another heavy exchange of fire. One Indian was shot dead. The rest of the Indians escaped. Even back then, outside forces influenced a lot of the issues. Nowadays, there's less of that. So largely, FBI agents on the reservation are respected. However, we are the federal government and they are the natives on 
most of our reservations have very good memories. They feel that they, their historic trauma they've faced with their dealings with the U.S. government, you know, it works down to us. We are the representative of the U.S. government. So largely, if it's a good relationship with the community, however, like anywhere, it depends on who you're dealing with. If you're going to talk to a victim's family, well, they want to see it. If you're going to talk to a subject's family, they don't want to see it. And sometimes that mixes because sometimes, especially in cases involving children, victim and the subject's family is one is one and the same. Um, so it makes it very challenging. But it's not like they're protesting the FBI on some kind of daily basis. It's the struggles that you see in in any community with law enforcement. Yeah, it's um, a typical challenge for for most agents in cities and communities throughout the nation, but certainly it sounds like it's exacerbated by history and um, by by some of the unique difficulties of working the reservations. Speaking of which, what kind of specialized training, if any, do agents receive when they get assignments to work crimes on reservations? Yeah, unfortunately, there's nothing up front. So they come into one of these uh, offices kind of blind to Indian country unless they, you know, are from the area. So, but once they're here, we do a pretty good job of getting them some initial training in their first year as quickly as we can. There's a two-week course that's a mix between FBI and the Bureau of Indian Affairs, usually held in Artesian, New Mexico, although they just created a new training program in, in North Dakota. So it makes it so agents and BIA and tribal officers don't have to travel as far. There's now choices of where to go. So that's like an indoctrination to Indian country. It involves evidence collection, investigative techniques, cultural sensitivity, you know, basic police investigative training beyond that. So we do get them that initial training. And then there are opportunities for specialized training, more in-depth evidence response team training, more in-depth homicide or child sexual assault training um, that are available. And so we do have good training opportunities. But the initial, I showed up in Rapid City today, mm, uh, that's one of the reasons we try very hard to identify candidates to work here that have prior police or prior military background that have that may have been expose this type of violence uh, in investigative work in the past. All right, let's hit pause for a 60-second break so we can chat about Audible. If you're listening to podcasts, you may prefer listening to your books. Sometimes there's a greater connection to the subject matter, the author, and the story when I listen to the books on my reading list. Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment all in one place. At Audible, you find the largest selection of audiobooks, from bestsellers and new releases to business, motivation, and more, including, well, my own bestseller, The FBI Way, inside the Bureau's Code of Excellence. You'll find it and thousands more titles on Audible. I listen to Audible when I'm on long drives or if I'm logging some miles on the treadmill. It helps me make the best use of my time. And as an Audible member, you'll get one credit every month good for any title in the entire premium selection the latest bestsellers new releases or that certain title you've been meaning to pick up those titles are yours to keep forever new members can try audible free for 30 days because you're listening to the bureau with frank figluzzi just visit audible.com bureau or text bureau to 500-500 This is where I get to tell you that the folks at Acorn TV have given me a free trial 
of their streaming service. The pandemic quarantine made TV a saving grace for many of us, but by now, if you're like me, you feel like you've watched every show imaginable. If you're tired of scrolling through all the same movies and shows and coming up empty, you should try Acorn TV like I have. Acorn TV has compelling stories, exclusive premieres, and hundreds of shows from around the world. There's always something new with new releases every single week. If you like my podcast, you'll like the Acorn TV series called Jack Irish. He's an Aussie who's a private investigator assisted by his girlfriend. His cases plunge him into Melbourne's criminal underbelly. Acorn TV costs only a fraction of most streaming services at only $5.99 a month. Do what I've done and try Acorn TV free for 30 days. Go to acorn.tv and use my promo code FRANK. That's A-C-O-R-N dot TV code FRANK for 30 days of free Acorn TV. Let's talk a little bit about your role as a manager. Um, you've got not just Indian country violations under you. You've got other programs out in the Dakotas that you're responsible for, other investigations and squads of agents that are each led by supervisors. How do you how do you manage your roles and responsibilities uh, in Indian country? What what's your mileage look like on on your car? And how do you how do you stay in touch and engaged with your counterparts vis a vis the reservations? Right. So there are five squads in my branch. However, that encompasses, I believe, nine resident agencies or sub-offices across North Dakota, South Dakota, and Northern Minnesota. And you're right, it's not just Indian country. I will tell you that 70 to 80% of the work that I see, in, especially in the Dakotas, it is Indian country work. But my branch covers all investigative activity that the FBI would cover anywhere else, um, from counterterrorism to white-collar crime. Uh, we don't have quite the exposure to terrorism type crimes in the rural Dakotas that they have in, say, New York City, but it exists. So uh, we do work investigations across the spectrum. So my daily activity, my the important part, I believe, of having an ASAC out west, uh, out in Rapid City, or it could be anywhere, really, so long as it's not in headquarters city, is being out here. One, it gives the agents a feeling of, hey, executive management is here executive management cares about what we do. Prior to me, when I was a supervisor, we were lucky to see an ASAC twice a year. Now, well, especially here where I sit, they see me every day, but I travel a lot too. So I put a lot of miles on a car going to the offices in Bismarck or Minot or Grand Forks or Bemidji because um, I want them to know that their program is important and that executive management, which includes me, is he- there to hear their issues, to address their concerns. And I think that's very important reason that there's an ASAC out in the field as we have it here. And, and of course, when we say ASAC, we're talking about your job title, assistant special agent in charge. Yes. So the tribal police, their executives, their chiefs and commanders, and even the Bureau of Indian Affairs, BIA police, what's the relationship like with them? And And we've talked on previous episodes of this podcast about the FBI's um, ability to provide training to police executives and and get them really the latest thinking and best practices across law enforcement. Is that something that's offered 
to tribal police or BIA police? And, and what's that look like? Sure, it is offered. It's different at the executive level than it is at the street level. Almost all of the trainings we have, whether it's homicide investigation, all those trainings I talked about that are available to agents are also available to tribal police officers and BIA police officers and special agents. So the training opportunities for the field agent or field officers there. Executive management for tribal police are a little different. BIA is more like us where they had their federal employees. However, the BIA is almost always grossly understaffed. I, I, I wouldn't want to guess, but they have significant staff shortages across the country. So they move people around to address problems in different areas in the country all the time. We could have a tribal police chief on a reservation here, and a few months later, they're reassigned to Rocky Fort out in Wyoming because they have a greater need there and they just don't have the staffing to fill all their slots. Um, so that's a challenge with BIA. However, our relationship with BIA is very good. We don't have any turf battles or things like that very, and not very often. You always have personality clashes here and there, but nothing that's systemic in any way. Mm. As far as tribal police, leadership goes, it, it's more fluid. So the tribal governments have uh, political functions, political elections every two years, and they change very often. In fact, I will tell you on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, there has not been an incumbent reelected since the early 1970s, the mid-1970s uh, and the AIM days. So they turn over quite a bit. Now, the same person will come and go. One person may be the tribal president on Pine Ridge for eight years, just not consecutively. So that political turnover is this, it has the same results to law enforcement there as it has in the Detroits of the world or anywhere else. Different political leadership has different visions and different goals. And often it conflicts with the past goals and the past focus of the police chiefs. And therefore they're, you know, they're removed and replaced. Also, some police chiefs you know, they come in with a contract, but it's it's a very challenging, tiring environment. There's a lot of work. They struggle with, you know, keeping police officers on staff. They struggle with the volume of uh, activity they have. So uh, if they're not removed for political reasons, they just get tired. It's, it's hard work for them. Well, you've really uh, helped to paint a picture of the, the myriad challenges of the FBI's work in uh, in Indian country from, as you just said, kind of the political instability, the turnover in police management, then, of course, the nature of the work itself, um, the, the lack of uh, backup being close by, the danger of, of the work where many calls sound like uh, what, what police might refer to as domestic calls almost on steroids where there's there's victims within the house and uh, and violent crime occurring. It's tough, challenging work. Bob, can you share with us some success stories, some uh, evidence of impact or partnerships or making a difference uh, in quality of life because of the FBI's uh, capacity and resources? Sure. I'll start with our work in the drug field. Too often, people from the outside, and remember drugs, methamphetamine, whatever it may be, and methamphetamine is the main drug on the reservations in our three-state area. But that's not something that's made on the reservations like you see on TV. No one's making in their bathtub or in their garage. It's poison that's shipped in from outside of the reservation, whether it comes through Denver or Minneapolis or Omaha, wherever it comes through, it comes to the reservations uh, and has a you know devastating effect 
on these closed, poor communities. Uh, it has a devastating effect everywhere, but it's more exacerbated in these types of communities. The issue we face and the way we you know, describe impact is these outsiders that come in. So you might have a person from Denver that moves into a house, gets a girlfriend or whatever on one of the reservations and sees it as an open territory for them. They know that the tribal police can't really arrest them because they are not natives, uh, which is a jurisdictional issue that they currently have. And in fact, there's a case in the Supreme Court now to address that. But right now, the tribe does not have jurisdiction over non-members. Bob, let me stop you there because okay. that raises a question, too, I think, um, not only for me, but I'm sure for our listeners, which is, you know, you essentially have someone who's who's hiding um, on a reservation uh, because they, they're aware of the jurisdictional limits. Are you saying that in, in many of these cases, the, the county sheriff or or any law enforcement authority from outside on the county or state level has to stop at that reservation uh, border and and can't enter that territory? Yeah, that's interesting. So that is correct. Uh, Across the country, it's a little different. There are some tribal departments with mutual aid agreements with their local counterparts. In the Dakotas, there are not, uh, including northern Minnesota, there are not. So correct. If, let's say, you're on the border of a reservation in a town and someone commits a crime who is native and they get back to the reservation, right? The sheriff cannot go there and exercise any kind of law enforcement authority. They have to, I'll use it figuratively, stop at the reservation line. I mean, obviously they can drive through the reservation. It's public, they're public roads still, but they have no jurisdiction once they reach that public line. Uh, many listeners may not be of the age and remember the Dukes of Hazard, but if you remember that, as soon as the Duke boys got to a county line, the sheriff had to stop. It's, it's very similar to that. Um, we don't have a lot of car chases where that happens, obviously, um, because the tribal police will cooperate and when the car reaches the reservation line, they take it over. But the jurisdiction of the non-tribal police stops at the reservation boundary. Got it. Thanks. And so please continue on with um, examples of the of the, the good work and success you've had. Sure. So following on that, these non-native members who are bringing the methamphetamine and other drugs into the communities feel a type of immunity uh, because all of their connections or friends or counterparts on the reservation tell them, oh, yeah, the tribal police can't arrest you. They can kick them off, but uh, it gives them a, a you know feeling of immunity. So what they don't understand is that we still have jurisdiction. And not only do we have jurisdiction, but we create safe trails task forces where we then can deputize tribal officers to exercise jurisdiction over them, or we deputize state officers that have jurisdiction in, on the reservation. It's a program where we can kind of fix some of those interesting jurisdictional issues. So that allows us to have that impact. We get to remove those people that came onto the reservation and brought that poison with them. We see it not a lot because we're pretty effective at it when we find out there is someone from the outside selling volumes of drugs on a reservation. So that impact is great. And in fact, one of the ways I judge it is by listening to the price of methamphetamine in the reservation. The more we do, the higher the price gets, uh, which means we're having some type of impact because it's getting more scarce and it's harder to get. So the price goes up. So that would be an example in the drug work of how we have impact on the reservations. Another example would be with our cases that involve children. We spend a lot of time working with child protective agencies on the reservation to ensure that not only are we addressing incidents of criminal activity, but we do our best to help them 
perform their duties better. So they have investigators. And rather than just having their investigators go out, try very hard to work with those investigators, many of them not law enforcement trained, um, that way that allows us to you know, be a, in a leadership role and in a training role to help them be more successful. And we've had several cases where this is proven successful, I guess I'll say again. So for instance, there was a case where some children were just unwanted by their family and ended up in the grandma or aunt's house and were basically neglected to the point where they became, one was blind, one was deaf, and they were malnourished. Um, and it, it just wasn't a good environment. And you find these environments everywhere, not just in any country. This was a house where drugs were prevalent, alcohol was prevalent, and taking care of children was not the focus. So we were eventually able to learn of that issue and in, intercede. We made some arrests, but the arrest part wasn't as important as bring, taking those children out of there and highlighting some of those issues that their own Child Protective Services missed. And I think it was, it's an opportunity for us to provide impact to families and the social environment, even though it's difficult for law enforcement to impact social economical issues. It's an example of where we have some little impact, even if little impact in improving their, for instance, child protective services system. It's a great example of the FBI bringing compassion and, and caring to a community that, that often is, uh, has that in short supply. That's a great note to end on. And we're grateful for the work that you, your agents, and your professional support team provide to the nation and to the indigenous peoples of your territory. Thanks, Bob, for joining us and keep safe. Thanks for listening to episode 11 of The Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. You'll want to join us next time when we visit the Joint Terrorism Task Force at FBI Buffalo and explore the challenges of America's other border. The Bureau is written by Frank Fagluzzi and executive produced by Allison Gill with sound design and editing by Molly Hockey. The show is engineered by Matt Brousseau with podcast art design by Johanna Coxeter. Music for The Bureau is written and composed by Peter Rydberg. The Bureau is a proud member of MSW Media Network, a collection of independent creator-owned podcasts focused on news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.